This morning's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that the grace, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer soul is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of our Lord. It's a beautiful passage for a challenging topic um, that as I was preparing this week and even thinking about the, the body life of Bethany Church, just knowing that across this room, the reality of end of life for us and those we love has been very present, even in our own congregation. And so there's a challenge as we come to this passage, this text, this topic this week to shy away, and yet I don't think that's what we need. I think at any time, what more than a time when we're dealing with grief or thinking about the end of life, do we need the hope of the gospel and to be realistic about what happens in life, but also what's available in Jesus. And so we move forward today, even knowing that we won't say everything today. We'll say a lot, as we have in this series. I know they've been full messages. I'm sorry. It's really hard in one week to talk about sex for a whole church. But we did it last week, and I know they're going a little long, but we'll do our best today. It's true that the challenges that begin in middle age seem to intensify as we reach later age, isn't it? A rapidly changing culture that we live in, as you've lived through as we age, a youth culture that envelops everything, the idolization of youth that sweeps the aging under the rug. How about technology? Anybody ever struggle with that? <laughs> Some of our lives, uh, us are like, I remember the TV coming. So now we're like, now I'm scrolling this thing in my hand, right? Technology that changes the moment we have it figured out, doesn't it? And it's on to the next thing. You feel left behind at times. You can. As we age, our energy feels sapped. Our mobility decreases. The American dream of retirement 
or institutionalized retirement can foster a false view that the goal of life is maximized leisure and everything has to be squeezed out of right now in this life and this moment. Add to that the progressive loss of loved ones we all experience the more we age, of friends, of driver's licenses, of health, and the list goes on and on, doesn't it? And then comes the practical reality of a life-threatening illness. Statistically, most people, cancer or heart disease. And then something we all know. The two certainties in life, one's taxes, we know. The other, what? It's death. It's no wonder when the famous actress of a generation, Doris Day, recently died last month at 97, 97, that her manager said this about her. No funeral, no memorial, no grave marker, Bashara says. That was her friend and manager. In addition to saying Day didn't like to talk about prospective funeral or memorial, Bashara explained she didn't like death, and she couldn't even be with her animals if they had to be put down. She had difficulty accepting death. At 97, at 97, that's a full, long, and by what anybody would ex- uh, expect or see if you know Doris Day and the fame and everything she had on a platter in front of her, and at the end of life, she's still, I'm not even going to talk about it. I can't even talk about it. I don't even want to discuss it. Why? I wonder, what was her worldview? I don't know. But she's like so many, fearing death, not wanting to talk about it. And just in case today you're here and you're in your 20s and 30s and you're thinking like, this message isn't for me. I got decades. Think of this. The temptation to lust after youth, what you've lost, what we've lost by aging, doesn't just start in your 60s and 70s, does it? The bitterness can be a seed now, even in our 20s and 30s, a seed that can become, if it's not dealt with now, a complex root system of bitterness that chokes every area of your life by the time you reach senior status. I thought at 42 I could do a sprint race with my daughter. I was wrong. (laughs) When I felt a pop in my hamstring... I'm asking myself now, what will it be like at 52, 62, 72? The lust of youth and what we had or what we've lost can start at any time. So how do we all of us age gracefully in glory? As Proverbs 16.31 says, gray hair, old age, that's old age. Gray hair is a crown of glory. Not something to be ashamed of, something to be swept away. It's gained in a righteous life. How do we age in wisdom, in righteousness, in glory, rather than forsaking those things, all of us? And how does God view us as we move closer towards the end of our life, as we age? That's what we're talking about today. And how do you view yourself as you're aging? Every day, right? Every day, a little older. How do you view yourselves? Is it according to the culture's view of aging? And fear of death, or is it according to how God views you as you age? This morning we look at three truths from the Apostle Paul's affliction in 2 Corinthians to see that our bodies that will be lost will be bodies that will be regained by a soul that's never going to die. So we're going to look at to let eternity hopefully fill our life with meaning right now today. So here's our first Thing, truth, we're going to pull out the passage from Apostle Paul. Aging, infirmity, or disability 
does not decrease your dignity. You could add to that worth or ability to image God. Aging, illness, those who may, might suffer with a disability does not increase your humanity or decrease. There's a temptation in our culture to view our worth, our dignity as we age behind all kinds of standards and things that actually no one can ever actually keep as they age. Just look at any advertisement. Young is good, old is what? Bad. Any advertisement. Young is good, old is bad. Paul knows this. His worth is not based on how his body holds up. As he says in verse 7, look with me there, chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Our bodies, while good, we've been talking about that through this whole series, your body is good. It's a gift from God. While good, it's still like a jar of clay, fragile, put together, breakable. We're weak, we're frail, we break down. We lose things that we've based our identity on in our life. And that's the danger of basing your identity, your, your total self-worth on, or your meaning or your purpose, or even your personhood on things like productivity, doing, uh, mobility, going, mental clarity, thinking, physical appearance, how we look. Every one of us. We all transition in life at some point from a state of doing to just being. Every one of us. As we age or by infirmity or some of us individuals with, with a disability or we're on the outside, you ever felt older on the outside than you do on the inside? That feeling as jars of clay break down? This middle-aged mom got it perfect when she said this about her, her and her teenage daughter. When I stand at the kitchen sink to wash up with my teenage daughter beside me now, eye to eye, taking hold of time is like trying to grasp at water. Ever felt that? Running through my hands, and I wonder, does she know that my insides don't feel old? Does she know that she'll be me in five seconds? <laughs> she got it. <laughs> Do you ever feel like that, that those accomplishments, they just slip away? or your resume, or the places you used to be able to travel, the jobs you used to have, the roles you used to have in church that go away as you age. My insides don't feel old. Paul was afflicted. He was perplexed. He was afflicted in body. Perplexed, he says in these verses. Persecuted, struck, close to death all the time in these verses, but he says, not crushed, not despairing, because internally, like we might sometimes feel youthful while the outside, the jar of clay is breaking down, internally, he carried a treasure in that jar of clay. That's what he says. The life of Jesus, verse 11 says. He says, I'm carrying the truth and the light of the gospel inside this jar of clay, even as it breaks down. I'm carrying something eternal with me. It was this hope of resurrection power that enabled the Apostle Paul and can enable you and I to feel the real affliction of life. It's real. 
of pain, your suffering, our loss, but not be destroyed by it. That's what he's laying out for us here. Your worth, your value does not come from your successes. We have to hear that. It does not come from your productivity. It doesn't, because all that's going to go away. Or health, but from being made in God's image alone. That's where your value comes from. And that stays with you from conception to death and on into eternity. Your value matters just because you are, just because you're being, just because you're here. We've got to view people through that gospel, that God lens, in the Im- an image of God lens, from, you know, from the bald baby to the gray-haired saint. All matter, all have purpose, and everyone has a place here at Bethany Church, wherever you're at in that stage. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to to the flesh. She's saying, we don't look and say, wow, they've got it together. Or wow, she's really young. Oh, I wish, you know, or, or he's really successful. He should be the one. No, we don't look at people that way anymore. We don't judge by earthly standards of worth, but godly standards of being made in God's image, which everyone in this room is, and everybody actually on every corner of the globe right now. I like what this uh, one lady said. The value of human life, it's important. It matters what we're saying right now, what Paul is saying. In all its forms, at all its stages, it is the central theme of the gospel. For it's the very purpose of Christ's death, birth, death, and resurrection. To fail to respect human life at any point mocks the very essence of Christ's mission to humanity. We don't become worthless as we age, even though that's what our culture tells us. You do not become of less value through illness, through disability, because you image God. And we uniquely do so at any stage, as a baby, as the gray-haired senior saint, and even as those with illness. We image that God uniquely. Just because he says you do, that's why. Because he made you. Don't believe that lie that your worth is based on what you do. It's based on the fact that you just are. You are. You're, you're here. You're alive. You have worth just because of that. So let that view. That view's got to shape our lives, shape how we treat infants and children, and especially as we treat those in our congregation as they age or lose faculties or lose memory or lose abilities. They don't lose their dignity or their worth or their value. It's our first one. You're aging, your health, none of that makes you any less valuable person. Here's our second one. Our view of death, too, as we think of the end of life, and decisions about death are, too, to be informed by, you could say, the gospel or resurrection power Paul's speaking about here or the truths that he knows. That's what informs how we view death. That's how it informs how we view, make decisions about the end of life. We've got to have a biblical view on dying. We have to. It's one of the most crucial and 
stressful and trying times of life where we can lose our way and lose our thoughts and the enemy loves to come in at the end of life and try his best, we've got to have a biblical view of what God says. In the middle of this passage on affliction here, Paul's speaking about all this affliction. In verse 13, there, look down at your text. He quotes a psalm of David. Psalm 111. Jot that down, Psalm 111. It would be a great one to read later today to follow up with this sermon or to use in prayer for devotional life because David's close to death in Psalm 111. And in verse 10, he says what Paul quotes here, I believed and so I spoke it. As I believed, you could say, so I speak. What's in my heart comes out of my mouth. Another way to say it. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. of chapter 4 there. Since we have the same spirit of faith, I think he's speaking about the same attitude David has. According to what's been written, here's David's words, I believed and so I spoke. Paul says, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing this, here's that resurrection power, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Psalm 116, I said this, David has, even in the face of death, he has this incredible confidence, this this surety, this certainty of attitude and and trust in God in the middle of this trial. Here's, Here's the verses from Psalm 116 coming up. I will lift up, he says, in the middle of this trial, I will lift up the cup of salvation and I'll call on the name of the Lord. I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all people. I don't care who's around. In the presence of everyone. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. And so David, in the face of death, says, as I believe, so I will speak. And he proclaims what he believes in these verses here. And so Paul, too, says, this is what we believe So we speak it. We say it. I know with certainty, Paul says, Jesus will raise up our dead bodies. I know it, so I speak it. I know it, so I speak it, that he'll bring us after he raises us. Not just raise us, but bring us into his presence, which is even better. I know it, so I speak it, Paul says. I'm going to say it, he says, when I'm afflicted when I'm perplexed, when I'm persecuted, struck down, close to dying, I'm going to say it, my life is in his hands. I believe it, so I say it. That's what Paul's doing here. What I believe about life and death, I have to say. I've got to hold on to it. I believe it, so I say it. As David did it, as Paul did it, as you and I are now doing it today, what do we believe so we can say it even in our own life. Let's look at four things. Look quickly at four things about the Christian view of death and end-of-life decisions now as Paul was facing it, as David was facing it, so that we can say as Paul does, I believe it, so I speak it. And I live it. Here's the first one. Death is common, but not natural. Death is common, but not natural. I think too often in our world, we just think that, hey, death is just a natural part of life. So, I mean, why think about it? Why worry about it? 
why focus on it? And if you just have a materialistic view of the world, all there is is matter and nothing behind it, nothing invisible, no God, no spirit world, you just look at it and go, you know, we got here by some accident, we're going to leave by some accident. It's just a part of life. Why dwell on it? When in reality, it is common, it happens to all, but it's not natural. What do I mean by that? It's not natural. We've been talking about that throughout this series. We were originally designed, do you know that? We were originally designed to not have our soul separate from our body, ever. Think about that. You were designed and you were made to never have a moment in your life as Adam and Eve were made to have your soul separate from our body. That's how we were made. And yet death came into the world because of sin was not part of the original design, the original plan, the original life that Adam and Eve had. Death came in because of sin. And it's actually an enemy. It's an intrusion into God's creation. It's not natural as we think about it today. It's common, but not natural. It's an enemy, however a defeated one. Here's a couple of verses to show us that. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's not natural. But it is common. It's a part of the fall. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 5.16. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. It's common, not natural. And God is grieved when sin and death entered the world, and is today even. It's an enemy. But those of us in Christ know, while the enemy death may have a laugh, death won't have the last laugh. We'll not have the last laugh. So we can struggle even against death. And we should in certain situations even. It's right to take advantage of modern medicine in certain situations to prolong life when recovery at some level or restoration seems possible at some level. But not to prolong inevitable death through medical intervention that causes suffering without any benefit. It's right to do so. It's it's right to to fight. But it's also okay when it's not going to bring any benefit, only prolong suffering without any benefit to the person, to not. Because why? We know when we finally die, we will gain our body again at the resurrection. So while it's an enemy to be fighted against, God doesn't ask us to do it at any cost, all the time, no matter what, especially if there's no help, uh, hope of restoration or return to health. So it's common but not natural. And because we know about the resurrection, here's our second one. We don't need to fear death. You do not need to fear death. We don't need to fear death. We also don't have to unnecessarily grasp life too tightly either. Yes, we should pursue life. Yes, we should pursue health. We should pursue restoration, but not at all costs, especially when it's prolonging suffering or not actually going to be possible to bring any restoration or life back. We also don't have to hold on to life too tightly. 
when recovery doesn't seem possible. Because we have nothing to fear of death for the Christian. There's nothing to fear for us, for you, for I, if I believe and I've trusted Jesus Christ. We have nothing to fear in crossing over as it's been said. One comedian said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> What's he actually saying? He's afraid of death. I think that's the sentiment most Americans have. We fear death. Let's be honest. And let's be honest that there's a temptation even in the church amongst Christians to fear death. I mean, I don't, whether it's the unknown, you know, remember we weren't created to separate soul from body, the unknown of what that's like, the fear of leaving behind our stuff, maybe, or even more, the fear of leaving behind family and friends. I was talking with Tony, actually, Freitas, this week, one of our missionaries who goes to Africa from time to time, and we were talking about this very topic, fear of death, end of life, and he was telling me a story about an African pastor that asked him, why do Americans fear death so much? He said, we look forward to that day. That day will be in the presence of the Lord. And, and, and sometimes we feel that day can't even come soon enough. He said, why do Americans fear death so much? Now, Americans aren't the only ones to fear death. And there's some Africans that fear death too. It's not just an American problem. But as an adopted child of God, you don't need to fear death. You don't have to be afraid of death. It's like Paul's words in the Philippians. Here's what he said. He said in Philippians 1, 23 and 24, I'm hard-pressed. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart with be with Christ. That's far better. But he also knows life's good. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary to your account. He knows I've got good work to do here until the day the Lord calls me home. But I know when I go home, it's going to be far better and far better. And it's actually even more desirable. To depart, to die for the believer is to instantly be with Christ. That's what we know. That's why it's better. That's why you don't have to fear. Your security will be visible at that moment. Your Savior will be touchable with a real body in that moment. In fact, it's, it's actually the best thing that could ever happen. The worst thing that can happen to you is the best thing that can happen to you if you're secure in Jesus. Paul knows. His life is good. He's going to live it till its fullest, and you know Paul did. You know, he, he lived it to its fullest until he was crucified, until he was killed or beheaded. Um, he lived it till its fullest. So we don't need to fear it. But here's our third one. We should never actively cause it. We should never actively cause it. This is such a complex and difficult, challenging situation where each situation at the end of life needs to be prayed about, thought about, wisdom sought from family and church, and biblically guided. But what we do know is actively now. We're going to talk about the difference between active and passively allowing someone to die. But actively taking someone's life. I'm not talking about the removal of life-sustaining treatment. 
actively taking someone's life. You have to hear this. There's a difference between actively, passively allowing someone to die and actively hastening it. Artificially and intentionally hastening someone's death is always wrong. Always. How do we know that? Really simple. We don't have to go further than the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. It's clear. It is there. I know West Coast, we live on the West Coast. We live on the the edge of kind of pushing the boundaries with the end-of-life decisions. I know it's been called death with dignity. It's been called euthanasia, which means a good death. These are euphemisms founded on two lies. Here's the two lies. There's never any purpose in any suffering that happens in life. The second one is this. Personal autonomy is always the greatest good. It's founded on two lies, and it's understandable. It's understandable. There's no self-righteous judgment here when you have been with somebody who is at the end of life or who has experienced pain. It's understandable that our culture would move that direction. There's a strong pull towards this idea. I mean, why wouldn't we just alleviate suffering by actively now taking a life? Or the question, why shouldn't it be their choice? The biblical world cannot support those worldview. First, here's the idea, no purpose in suffering. The idea is that at any time, any given moment, we should alleviate all suffering as if that is actually even possible living in this world. But that's the first idea. Our call to love neighbors, though, speaks to something different. The idea that there's no purpose in suffering. Of course we should alleviate suffering. Our call to love our neighbors speaks to that. We should alleviate suffering as much as possible in any medical situation, in any psychologically painful situation. We should seek to alleviate suffering. Our love of neighbor commands that. To be treated as you would like to be treated demands that. We have to do that. In tenderness, in care, in compassion, in medicine, in palliative care, all of those things that are good things from God to use, we should use to alleviate suffering. And while it's best not to tell someone on a hospital bed in pain, your suffering has a purpose, all of it does. Paul said in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. He goes on to say character and hope, and hope that will not be put to shame. God can use it. He can redeem it. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. What was the greatest act of suffering? Jesus Christ, if God could not redeem and use your suffering, it is meaningless. But look what he did at the cross. Look what he did at the cross. The greatest act of suffering that ever took place was the greatest benefit for your life. Here's another one, James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. doesn't mean he, he finds actually joy just like, like masochistically in the, in the suffering. I just love to suffer. No. But he knows it's doing something. He knows it's working on him. He knows God is not going to waste it. 
He knows God is not standing back aloof going, hey, you're on your own now. I had you when things were good, but I can't go with you there. No, he knows God is every step of the way with him. And so James says it. I know it's going to produce something in me. Now, as I said, we should use palliative care to alleviate pain. You bet. We do not say, hey, God is just, he's using this. Deal with it. No, no, we help. We aid. But at any cost? At the cost of murder? The cost of actively taking a life? And thank God that palliative care has advanced so far. So far. Thank God for that. Do you know that the fear of pain is not even the number one reason most people choose physician-assisted suicide? Do you know that? You you would think that's what it would be, and that's the argument that's put forward most. That's not even the number one reason. Loss of autonomy is actually the number one reason. The loss of autonomy. Uh, here's Here's some stats from our own state. A review of data in Oregon from 98 to 2016 revealed that 79 to 92% of people who committed suicide with physician assistance cited loss of autonomy, inability to engage in activities that make life enjoyable, and loss of dignity as their motivations for ending life. Intractable pain was a factor in only 25% of cases. We're talking about active physician-assisted suicide here. In some northern European countries now, people are choosing physician-assisted suicide because of depression. And it's actually been opened up to children now. Can you imagine asking a child to make that decision as a parent? Or be pressured by parents to do it? What do you think about that? So rather than seeking to eliminate the suffering, what do we do? We eliminate the sufferer. That's what we're doing in these situations. Rather than seek to eliminate the suffering, we eliminate the sufferer or those that we deem not worthy of living anymore. When true care might be this, in that moment, which many of you have done, sitting next to a loved one and holding their hand, singing a hymn over them, praying God's word over them, until God takes them home, not some doctor. And I know, like I said, so many of us, so many of you have faithfully done that for your loved ones, and you will be rewarded for that someday. And they will thank you again someday when they see you. And I know many Christians have died a truly good death and ministered to those while they were watching them trusting in God's timing to take them, trusting in his care to come alongside them, not abandoning the faith, not shaking their fist at God, but going the path that he's chosen to take them on. And they've watched a Christian die. You think a good death, that's a truly good death. Dying in faith, saying, I believe it, so I speak it, and so I live it, and so I end this way. How about autonomy? That's the second one. I should have the right to decide when I die. Now, actively we're talking here. Here's what the Bible says. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life, for Samuel says. There's another one in Psalm. 
In your book were written every one of them, the days formed for me, when as yet there was none of him, none of them. God has given us a will to make choices, but not to actively now decide, actively, not passively, to actively decide when the day of our life, our, our life ends. He gives life. He takes it. He writes the number of our days. Here's Job, another one. A person's days are determined. You've decreed the number of his months. You've set the limits. He cannot exceed. God determines the number of our days even, and months, and even your life. To decide now, we're talking actively, for a physician is this to suicide, for personal autonomy reasons, is playing God with your life. Even if you don't realize it, it's playing God with your life. It's stepping into places that only are reserved for him, the giving of life and the calling home of his people. And true freedom for the Christian, it's not, it's not personal autonomy. True freedom for the Christian comes not from autonomous individualism, but making decisions, even decisions about death to glorify God. That's personal freedom. I speak it. I believe it, so I speak it. I believe it, so I live it. Here's another one. Just because something is legal doesn't make it moral. Have you thought about that? Just because something becomes law doesn't make it moral. We don't get to play God by actively deciding when our life ends. Actively now. Physician-assisted suicide, pill, other means that take place. But here's one more. You might say, that's all Bible reasons. You know, how's that going to fly in the culture? You know, okay, yes, we might believe that as Christians. But here's another danger. We're talking cultural now. What begins as a right in a culture, your right to do something, never stays there. Take a look at this slide. Here's what's happening in lots of northern European countries. What begins as a right to die, a personal autonomy right, over time becomes a duty to die in a culture. That's what's happening in Northern uh, Europe right now. What begins as a, it's autonomy, it's a personal choice, becomes a t- over time an obligation. Hey, you know what, you pro- you've probably got a year left. You, you know, you're draining, you're, it's a drain. It becomes an obligation rather than just your autonomous choice. What starts out as voluntary, I choose this for myself, is becoming, has been already, involuntary in lots of Northern European countries. Not the person's choice, actually, to end their life. Voluntary to involuntary. This is how a culture of death slides and progresses, this way. It doesn't stop there. What starts as a right becomes a duty. I was watching this week, and I was wanting to show a video, chilling video from northern Europe. I think it's Denmark. They're talking to a man with Down syndrome. He's right in front of them. They're calculating on a whiteboard how much he costs the state. Think about the inhumane, dehumanizing effect that has on him. He, he, he's, he's down syndrome. He sits there and he goes, wow, wow, I didn't realize I cost 40,000 euros a year for the state. That's the bottom one. What starts off is we're valuing the person, autonomy and suffering, all those things that we, we would even think may be good on the surface, becomes the cost of care. And that's what's happening in a lot of places. Here's how this looks. Dad, I get it. I understand, you know, you have, you've been not feeling well. 
you know, it's been, you know, the doctor says you maybe have six months, maybe, if you're lucky. I want you to think about this. It's, it's hard on the kids to see you like this. I get it. And I know, I know, I know. Yes, you, you want to see them, I know. But it's hard on them. And the, the, I, I want to be honest with you. The cost is, it's building up. I mean, the bills are stacking up. I know you know that. I know you don't want to strap us with bills or, or stress us out. You know, the doctor talked to me. There are some options, Dad. I know, I know, I know. I know it's not something you ever thought about. I know it feels weird. You're like, it might even feel wrong, but it, it, it's, 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 it's okay. Lots of people are doing this. You know, you'll, be, you know, you'll, you'll be out of this, this suffering. What do you think, Dad? That's how it goes. That's how it's going. You may think, well, that's just kind of an alarmist view. You're kind of like being a little alarmist, Jeff. My wife, Robin, spent a couple hours this year on a plane ride with someone who, uh, uh, her job is to go into the home and assist with home suicides. This is her job. Now, her reasoning, she saw her mother suffer at the end of life. It was a heartbreaking, a heartbreaking story, she told Robin. And, and this is her job. She's pro-assisted uh, suicide. But even she told Robin, I've had to walk away and walk out of three or four homes because the family was pressuring the person and they didn't want to do it. When you detach the value of a person from the inherent dignity and worth of just being made in God's image and you assign to it some other arbitrary category, this is what happens. This is what happens. A little more, there's shock value with this quote, and she meant to. Her name's Katie Hopkins. She's a British columnist. Here's what she said. We just have far too many old people. It's ridiculous to be living in a country where we can put, down, put dogs to sleep but not people. Her proposed solution, the article said, back to her quote, easy, euthanasia vans. Just like ice cream vans, she said. We come to your home. It'll all be perfectly charming. They might even have a nice little tune they'd play. She said, I mean this genuinely. I'm super keen on euthanasia vans. Denmark has them already. I mean, I just want you to think about the reality of this. She's attempting to be shocking. She's attempting to be shocking here. She's um, referencing a, a, a science fiction short story that was written uh, about uh, death vans that would come to a home. But she really believes it. Until the van comes for her. When it costs the state and insurance companies thousands of dollars for your treatment and care, how's a $35 pill look? Which is the way a culture of death is always going to drift. So, where do we rest as Christians? Where do we rest? The summary statement of verse 7 through 15 life, death, and resurrection are in God's hands. They are in God's hands. I have the gospel, Paul says, even in affliction and death. He says, I have that. I carry Jesus' life in my body when it's breaking down. He's with me when it's breaking down like a jar of clay. My prayer for you is the more those cracks start to show in your jar of clay, the more the light of Jesus will shine through. 
That's my prayer for us. So I hurt, yes, but I'm not destroyed because I stand firm in what I know. He will raise us. So we trust him with our life. We trust him with our death. We trust him with our resurrection. But how does that become a reality now? How do we make sure that as we grow old, we're still growing new? That's our final point. Make peace with your aging, broken body by daily spiritual renewal. Here's what he says in verses 16 through 18. They are beautiful. We need to hear them today after even that shocking quote. So we, you, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's saying here. Hear this. Your body can be breaking down, wasting away in affliction, and your spiritual life can be soaring at the same time and actually growing, being used by God until the day you die. The sunset years of our body don't have to be the sunset years of your soul. That's what Paul's saying here. We don't lose heart. Your body can be fading away as your spirit burns brighter. In fact, what Paul's saying is here that by looking to heaven, you can make peace, actually, with an aging, with a broken, with an ill body, and be renewed in the middle of it. You've heard it said that to be too heavenly-minded is to be no earthly good. But what Paul is saying here, the key, actually, the key to being renewed, to finding joy and even, even in pain and suffering, to not give in or, or buckle under pressure, to not lose heart, verse 16 says, is to be so heavenly-minded, actually, that the suffering of this world is experienced as a momentary affliction. Think about that for a minute. What must heaven be like? Or what's awaiting us if every one of us will look back on what we've been through life and say, That was a light momentary affliction. What must it be like if we're going to, all of us, be able to say that, regardless of what we went through? That was a light momentary affliction, getting us ready for this. And what must it be like? We can't imagine it. The joy awaiting us. Because, as Paul says, your body, what you can see is temporary, it's transient, but we can't see is forever eternal. Be heavenly-minded, and it will transform your earthly days, actually. That's what Paul's saying. Be so heavenly-minded that you live in the here and now with the joy of the gospel. It means that as you age, you don't lose your humanity. You actually can become more human as you age, as you're renewed in Christ. I love what C.S. Lewis said about it. He said, the Christians who actually did the most for the present world were just those who thought most about the next. He always says it better than I can ever say it. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. He says, aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim just at earth, you'll get neither. (laughs) I love it. I was talking to one of our dear senior saints this week, 
one who's a, a shining example of this wanting to still renew. And she was talking about how she wants to minister more, more as she ages. Invite others over to fellowship to continue to learn how to ask good questions and lead people to Jesus. And she said, and I can always pray. I can still at least pray. To which I said, that's actually the most powerful and actually the best thing you can do. Even as our outward body wastes away, may each and every one of us be those who grow and renew in wisdom and in righteousness and minister and serve till our last natural dying breath. Even if it means serving by laying in a bed and letting others serve you. We don't like the thought of that, do we? Renewing the gospel, you're never too old for that. One more quote and we'll close it. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this. He's, and this is what Paul's saying. It's a summary statement. He's saying Christianity is this, this total view that enables me to live, to view life and death and all things and to do it triumphantly. Christianity, it's a total view. It's not merely some narrow, cramped, confined little system. It's that which enables a person to be exultant even in the midst of the storm. That's what Paul, this whole passage is about. Renew in knowing that what God is preparing for us will make, will make every drop of suffering worth it, actually. Because our bodies that will be lost will be bodies that will be ga- regained by spirits that never die. That's what Paul's saying. That's what awaits every one of us who've trusted in Jesus. Let's pray. God, may we have